and welcome to the latest podcast in our Regulation in Focus series. In this episode, we'll be discussing whistleblowing arrangements for financial services firms in the UK, looking at recent developments in this area, and how firms can try to deal with some of the more difficult whistleblowing issues that can arise. My name is Kat Dankos, and I'm a regulatory consultant in the financial services regulatory team at Herbert Smith Freehills here in London. I'm delighted to be joined by Jenny Andrews. Jenny is a, of counsel in our employment team and by Charles McGrath. Charles is a senior associate in our contentious financial services regulatory practice also in London. Jenny and Charles regularly advise financial services firms in relation to tricky whistleblowing issues and are experts in this area. So let's dive right in. Jenny, Charles, I understand that whistleblowing has remained a hot topic in the financial services sector during and after the pandemic. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, of course. In the last few years, the FCA has tended to receive around a thousand whistleblowing reports a year. And that level has largely continued during the pandemic years and included a number of disclosures about breaches of COVID safety rules. The FCA reported that in the 12 months from April 2020, they received 55 complaints about policies implemented by employers in response to the COVID-19 pandemic about things like insufficient PPE or inadequate social distancing, employers miscategorizing staff as key workers, and employers expecting staff to work while furloughed. There's also been a continuing focus on harassment complaints, with reports showing a year-on-year -year rise in bullying, sexual harassment, and discrimination complaints in 2020 and 2021. Whilst these reports are not specific to the financial services industry, the sector is clearly not immune to harassment issues, and it appears that workers are more and more unwilling to put up with toxic workplace cultures and mistreatment. It's worth noting that according to Protect, who are the whistleblowing charity, and their report Silence in the City 2, a report which looked at the experiences of financial services whistleblowers from 2017 to 2019, discrimination and harassment complaints form part of the top six concerns raised, likely due to the Me Too movement and resulting shifts in workplace cultures in the financial services sector. In addition, a very recent Court of Appeal judgment, Kong and Golf International, which we'll talk about a little bit later, has generated some concern among commentators that whistleblowers' protections under the law are being eroded. Protect has been vocal in criticising this decision. So that's interesting. Was there any positive news in Protect's whistleblowing report? Yes, Protect's research did appear to show some real cultural change in the financial services sector. It showed greater trust and use of internal whistleblowing arrangements and increased awareness of those internal whistleblowing arrangements and more persistence from whistleblowers in raising their concerns. However, the findings also showed a void between what is written in the employer's policies and the responses from firms, with around two thirds of whistleblowers reporting that they had experienced some form of victimization over half of employers not taking any action to resolve such victimisation and a third of whistleblowing complaints being ignored. The number of complaints made to the FCA after the whistleblower had been mistreated by their employer for making a report increased by almost 20% between 2020 and 2021. Whilst it's clear that the advent of the FCA whistleblowing rules, which have now been in place for over five years, have brought about positive change in the sector, firms have a long way to go to meet best practice in handling whistleblowers and it will be interesting to see how things develop as we return to the new normal and offices working. We will also touch on some of these points of best practice later on in the podcast. Thanks, Charles. 
it's very useful to put this all into context. And there can be reputational as well as regulatory issues when a firm fails to implement whistleblowing requirements properly, right? Yes, that's right. There tends to be quite a lot of media interest, particularly if it looks like there's been a cover-up. When a firm has tried to persuade a whistleblower to withdraw their disclosure, or if it has sought to discover and publish the identity of an anonymous whistleblower. You'll remember the fines issued to the Barclays CEO back in 2018 over his attempts to unmask a whistleblower. And more recently, there has been media interest in claims that a director of the Competition and Markets Authority pressured a whistleblower to retract allegations of misconduct at its open banking unit, and then allegedly disclosed the whistleblower's identity to the chairman and programme director of open banking. And of course, details of action taken by the regulator in response to inadequate whistleblowing systems and controls will also be publicly available. For example, in January of last year, the FCA and PRA issued written notices to two firms requiring them to provide a wide range of information, such as copies of whistleblowing policies, reports on effectiveness, numbers of actual disclosures and investigations, as well as details of the allegations where they involved a senior manager and or director, instances of detriment, descriptions of training, and so on. Quite onerous obligations, all of which were set out in a public notice. I see. I think it's clear that whistleblowing issues are still a key area of focus, both for firms and the regulators. These examples show how seriously the FCA and PRA take these matters, and there is a real risk of sanctions against firms and individuals who don't deal appropriately with whistleblowing. Thank you both for that really interesting introduction to these issues. Before we turn to consider some of the more challenging issues that arise in practice, um, Jenny and Charles, for the benefit of those in our audience who may be less familiar, and certainly for those of us who could use a refresher, could you briefly summarize the statutory and regulatory requirements in respect of whistleblowing in the UK? Yes, of course. In this podcast, when we talk about whistleblowing, we will be referring to two overlapping meanings of the firm. In a moment, Charles will talk through how the term is used for UK regulated financial services firms. However, I'm first going to focus on the slightly narrower statutory definition, which applies in all sectors pursuant to the Public Interest Disclosure Act, or PEDA, as it is known. So as you may know, under the general statutory definition, whistleblowing is the act of an employee or worker making what's called a qualifying disclosure, which provided it's made in the right conditions to one of a certain specified categories of recipient will then be what's called protected disclosure. That means the whistleblower will be protected from being dismissed or subjected to any detriment because of the disclosure. Normally, to bring an unfair dismissal claim in the UK, you need to have two years service and the compensation available is capped at one year's salary. However, a whistleblowing dismissal is automatically unfair with no minimum service requirement and no cap on the compensation that can be awarded, which obviously makes it an attractive type of claim. And any clause in a termination agreement under which the employee is prevented from reporting a whistleblowing disclosure, for example, to a regulator, will be void and unenforceable under employment law and is also prohibited by the regulatory rules. Who can bring a claim under the employment law regime? So workers and employees, both current and former, are covered by the whistleblowing regime. The definition of worker for these purposes is broad and includes, for example, agency workers, freelance workers and non-executive directors. Job applicants are also able to avail themselves of the benefit of whistleblowing protections. 
And you mentioned that the disclosure has to be a qualifying disclosure? Yes, that basically means that there must be a disclosure of information, which in the reasonable belief of the worker is made in the public interest and tends to show one of six specified types of wrongdoing. Those are a criminal offence, breach of a legal obligation, miscarriage of justice, danger to health and safety, damage to the environment, or deliberate concealment of any of those. The worker has to have conveyed specific facts which the worker reasonably believes tend to show one of these six specified types of wrongdoing. Just making a simple allegation that an employer has breached a particular legal obligation is not enough by itself. However, the Court of Appeal has concerned that the context can be taken into account, including gestures communicated at the same time in determining whether facts have also been conveyed. An example that's often given is that a simple statement that you are in breach of health and safety requirements is an allegation which is not enough by itself. Whereas if at the time the speaker was also showing their manager needles lying around in a hospital, that would be. And you said the disclosure had to be made to the right type of recipient as well. Yes. So to be a protected disclosure, it normally has to be made to an employer, a regulator, legal advisor, minister, MP or other responsible or prescribed person. In general, disclosures to a worker's employer, i.e. an internal disclosure, are encouraged as the primary method of whistleblowing, whereas disclosures to other parties may be protected only if certain additional conditions are met. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, Charles, I understand the rules and requirements around whistleblowing are different in the financial services context. Yes, that's right. For FCA-regulated firms, whistleblowing has a wider meaning, and the FCA requirements are set out in Chapter 18 of the Senior Management Arrangement Systems and Control Sourcebook, CISC, part of the FCA handbook. CISC 18 applies to all whistleblowers, so is even broader than workers and employees, and applies in instances where there is a reportable concern. A reportable concern includes anything which is a protected disclosure Jenny has spoken about, but it also includes any breach of the firm's policies and procedures and behaviour that harms or is likely to harm the reputation or financial well-being of the firm. Further, in contrast to the test for a protected disclosure, there is no requirement for the whistleblower to reasonably believe that the disclosure of a reportable concern is in the public interest or that the information is accurate. Instead, firms will be left to assess each reportable concern and respond accordingly. This means different rules can apply based on the type of disclosure. For example, if we think in harassment, depending on the particular misconduct, there may not be the necessary public interest element for a disclosure to fall within the definition of a protected disclosure under the employment legislation. But it could well be a reportable concern under the FCA rules because, for example, it involves a breach of firm policy or it's likely to harm the reputation of the firm. This also means that issues that might previously have been regarded as pure grievances to be dealt with by HR could fall within the regulatory definition of a reportable concern and may need to be investigated, handled and reported as whistleblower complaints. The FCA and PRA have previously indicated that the whistleblowing arrangements should not be used where the nature or the issues properly fall within the scope of grievance processes but it's clear from the PROTECT report mentioned earlier that employees do appear to be using whistleblowing arrangements to raise discrimination and harassment issues. So HR professionals need to be able to spot when these should be treated as reportable concerns 
for example, where they evidence a cultural problem within a department or where there is a pattern of behaviour from one particular individual. And just picking up on this point about a concern potentially being both a whistleblowing disclosure and a grievance, it's worth bearing in mind that according to a recent Employment Appeal Tribunal decision in Ikejiaku, and sorry for my pronunciation, the ACAS code on grievances, which for the non-employment lawyers amongst us is the code that sets out the principles that employers should follow when dealing with grievances, actually applies when handling whistleblowing disclosures. So it's important to comply with the procedural steps set out in that code when handling the concern, given that any failure to do so could lead to an uplift of up to 25% to the compensation award for the whistleblowing claims. If employers have separate whistleblowing policies, which will often be the case, they will need to ensure that these are compliant with the ACAS code requirements. Okay, that's interesting. So, Charles, are all regulated firms covered by the same rules? The rules on precisely which bits of CISC 18 apply to which regulated firms are complex. It depends not only on the type of firm, but also on the type of allegation. But the handbook specifically states that even where a part of CISC 18 doesn't apply, a firm may adopt the rules and guidance as best practice and may tailor its approach in a manner that reflects its size, structure and headcount. While this is not mandatory, to ignore it altogether may lead to particular scrutiny from the regulator. There is also a wide catch-all for MIFID firms, which is set out at CISC 18.6, which requires MIFID firms to have in place appropriate procedures, which must enable employees to report any potential or actual breach of MIFID slash MIFIR through a specific, independent and autonomous channel. Protection from detriment is also clearly really important for the FCA, and if a whistleblower suffers a detriment, The FCA would regard that as a serious matter that could call into question the fitness and propriety of the firm and relevant members of staff. And that could affect the firm's continuing satisfaction of threshold condition five in relation to suitability or for an approved person or a certification employee, their status as such. It's therefore as important as ever, given the wide definitions that firms make sure staff, especially senior staff, recognise whistleblowing when they see it and know what to do in response. Thank you both for that really useful recap. Now that we've reminded ourselves about the basics, it would be great if we could discuss any recent case law developments that have been in this area, as well as some of the more tricky issues that you see coming up in practice. Thanks, Kat. I think one of the most common issues in whistleblowing cases is that making a disclosure often leads to colleagues feeling attacked or defensive rather than seeing the disclosure in a positive light as trying to help the firm and its people improve. As a result, as well as making sure the subject matter of the disclosure is properly investigated, employers are having to handle the reactions of colleagues, and this can sometimes go quite wrong. Unfortunately, all too often, whistleblowers can find themselves experiencing some form of victimization as a result of having blown the whistle, whether that be bullying and harassment from managers or co-workers, suspension, denial of promotion opportunities, bonus reductions, dismissal or resignation. And of course, there are other more subtle forms of retaliation which individuals can suffer. As the FCA says, ostracism is much more insidious and harder to track. Addressing this is largely about culture, painting whistleblowing in a positive light and ensuring that complaints of victimization are treated seriously and consistently. And of course, managers, HR and whistleblowing champions should all be trained and made aware of what constitutes victimisation and how to manage complaints appropriately. 
So you mentioned how people can react to whistleblowing. What if the employer thinks the whistleblower has been unnecessarily aggressive or abusive in the way they make their disclosure? Might that entitle them to dismiss? Well, that raises a difficult issue that comes up quite frequently in these cases, namely whether the employer can say that the reason for dismissal was not the disclosure itself, but the way in which the whistleblower made the disclosure, i.e. whether the disclosure and the conduct can be viewed as separable. This was the issue in a very recent Court of Appeal case, Kong and Gulf International Bank, which I mentioned earlier. The whistleblower in that case raised concerns about the inappropriate use of a particular legal template with the bank's legal manager in such a way that the manager perceived the employee as impugning her professional integrity. The manager complained and the claimant was then dismissed. The tribunal thought that the claimant had acted in a broadly reasonable way, but that wasn't what mattered. What mattered was the employer's view of her conduct, and on the facts, the tribunal found that the decision makers had genuinely thought that the claimant had made an unacceptable personal attack on the manager, and this was reflective of her poor interpersonal skills. Those were the reasons for her dismissal, not the disclosure, so it was not a whistleblowing dismissal. On appeal, the charity Protect argued that the Court of Appeal should establish as a rule that an employer's conduct in making a disclosure can only be properly considered separable from the disclosure where that conduct constitutes wholly unreasonable behaviour or serious misconduct. But the Court of Appeal wasn't willing to go that far. It said that where a whistleblower's conduct is blameless or does not go beyond ordinary unreasonableness, it is much less likely that the conduct will be found to be the reason rather than the disclosure. And tribunals will closely scrutinise those cases, but it's not impossible. It's acknowledged that a disclosure will almost always involve criticism of and cause upset to an individual. And therefore, this by itself will rarely be distinguishable from the disclosure. But on the facts in the Con case, the tribunal had closely scrutinized the facts and still found that it was the whistleblower's lack of emotional intelligence and insensitivity in the way in which she delivered explicit personal criticisms, which were not a necessary feature of making the disclosure and her refusal to apologise as instructed, despite acknowledging some fault, that was the decision-maker's genuine reason for dismissal. So although the dismissal was ordinarily unfair, it was not automatically unfair for whistleblowing. Protective criticised the decision on the basis that it will create uncertainty for whistleblowers and make it easier to victimise and dismiss whistleblowers. And even that, it goes against the protections supposedly afforded to whistleblowers by PETA. Of course, this may well not be the end of the story, as the employee is considering an appeal to the Supreme Court. So one to watch then. In that case, the decision makers knew about the protected disclosure, but were able to show it wasn't their reasoning for dismissing. What about if the decision makers don't even know a disclosure has been made? Will that always be a defense for an employer? Well, actually, no. Obviously, the motives of the decision maker are attributed to the employer. So if the motive for dismissing is the whistleblowing, that is seen as the employer's motive and a claim will succeed. Similarly, the motives and actions of a person charged with investigating a disciplinary allegation will also be treated as those of the employer. A relatively recent Supreme Court case illustrates how it can go wider still, where a line manager who is not involved in the investigation in some other way engineers the dismissal of a whistleblower out of a desire for retribution. 
This was the case in Royal Mail Group and Jehuti, and it really highlights the importance of a thorough investigation of the purported grounds for dismissing an employee who has previously blown the whistle. In that case, the employee's line manager had fabricated performance concerns out of a desire for retribution for the employee's previous whistleblowing. But the decision maker was unaware of the whistleblowing and of the line manager's motivation. The court ruled that if a person in the hierarchy of responsibility above an employee determines that the employee should be dismissed for a reason, but hides it behind an invented reason, which the decision maker adopts, the reason for the dismissal is the hidden reason rather than the invented reason. The employer was liable for an automatically unfair dismissal for whistleblowing in this case, even though the decision maker relied in good faith upon the invented reason of poor performance. So what can employers do to avoid the type of situation that arose in the Jehuti case? Well, the case highlights the importance of interviewing the employee and following up on any suggestions of a hidden motive on the part of any line managers involved in instigating the disciplinary process or providing evidence. It would also be prudent for HR and ER teams to consider whether relevant backgrounds, such as earlier whistleblowing disclosures or grievances or other potential reasons for personal animosity on the part of the relevant manager, should be brought to the decision maker's attention to take into account. What's more, where the manipulation is carried out by an employee at the same level or lower than the claimant, this will not impact on what is deemed to be the reason for dismissal, but the dismissed employee may have a detriment claim against the manipulator themselves, for which the employer is likely to be vicariously liable. So that suggested is not just the financial services firms themselves that need to be aware of these rules and can be liable when things go wrong. Yes, that's right. Something that always seems to grab a manager's attentions when discussing issues around whistleblowing is the fact that an employee can bring a whistleblowing detriment claim against a fellow worker. And that can include in relation to their actions in dismissing them, for which the employer may be vicariously liable, in addition to the employer being directly liable for an unfair dismissal claim. The Court of Appeal, in the case of International Petroleum and Ozipov, has made clear that if board members and senior managers are instrumental in a decision to dismiss an employee for whistleblowing, in addition to an unfair dismissal claim against the firm, the claimant can bring a detriment claim against the individual directors for personal liability. Because of differences between the two types of claim, there can be real advantages for a whistleblower in bringing both types of claim. For example, detriment claims have a lower standard of causation and injury to feelings awards can be made, whereas this is not the case for unfair dismissal claims. And if a detriment claim is made out, the work colleagues and the employer can be jointly and severally liable for the losses flowing from the dismissal. What this case highlights is the importance of firms refreshing their whistleblowing training for managers to flag the potential for personal liability in relation to dismissal or other detrimental treatment in whistleblowing cases. This could avoid claims arising and also help an employer establish a reasonable steps defence should a vicarious liability claim be brought. Okay, so stepping back to think about the definition of a protected disclosure, Jenny, you mentioned earlier that to qualify for protection under PETA, the worker has to have a reasonable belief that the disclosure is made in the public interest, something that isn't required under the regulatory regime. Is that quite a hard test to meet? Well, the key case on this is the Court of Appeal ruling in Chesterton, which sets out four relevant considerations in determining public interest. These are the number of individuals whose interests were served by the disclosure, 
the nature of the affected interests and the extent to which they are affected, the nature of the wrongdoing disclosed and the identity of the wrongdoer. The first factor is the number of individuals affected, but the recent case of Dobby and Paul Fenton solicitors has highlighted that the public interest test may be met even where the disclosure of wrongdoing is in relation to only one client, if the employer is in a regulated sector and the wrongdoing could be in breach of regulatory requirements. The claimant in Dobby made a disclosure to his employer that a client was being overcharged, motivated primarily by a desire to protect the client's interests. The tribunal had concluded that that was a private matter between the firm and the client, and that the claimant couldn't have reasonably believed it was a matter of public interest. The Employment Appeal Tribunal, however, disagreed. The tribunal had limited its reasoning to the number of individuals affected without considering the other Chesterton factors and whether the disclosure could have a broader protective purpose in the regulatory context. As such, a disclosure of information which showed that the firm was overcharging its clients in breach of the solicitor's accounts rules or other regulatory obligations was something that was in the public interest because those regulations were to protect the public. So this case is a useful reminder that even relatively narrow complaints can be protected disclosures, and it's particularly relevant to the financial services sector. Thank you. There's clearly been some interesting developments in this area in the past few years. To end, I just wanted to ask about what firms should be doing to ensure they have effective whistleblowing processes in place, and if there's anything they could be doing from a best practices perspective to better deal with whistleblowers. Firms have an obligation to the regulator to ensure the required policies and procedures are in place as part of the general requirement for adequate systems and controls. For some firms, broadly banks, PRA investment firms and insurers, there is an explicit requirement under CISC 18.3.1 to establish, implement and maintain appropriate and effective procedures for the disclosure of reportable concerns by whistleblowers. The procedures must be able to effectively handle reportable concerns where the whistleblower has requested confidentiality or chosen not to reveal their identity and via a range of communication methods, ensure the effective assessment and escalation of reportable concerns by whistleblowers where appropriate, including the FCA or PRA, include reasonable measures to ensure that no person under the control of the firm victimizes the whistleblower, allow for feedback to the whistleblower where this is feasible and appropriate, and finally, must be readily available to the firm's UK-based employees. In relation to feedback to the whistleblower, the requirement is that this be where it is feasible and appropriate. This is obviously open to interpretation and balanced against the specifics of the matter. For example, where a whistleblower has requested anonymity or people have left the firm, it may not be possible to provide comfort to the whistleblower that all of their concerns have been thoroughly investigated. Research undertaken in this area suggests that whistleblowers generally feel ignored. Firms should ideally be proactive in communicating to whistleblowers, seeking feedback where possible to tell them what action has been taken on their concerns, and asking if they feel victimised for having raised concerns. Also, although a global firm may not have mandatory requirements in relation to whistleblowing in particular jurisdictions, for example Hong Kong, Firms with an international presence may nonetheless be required to implement a whistleblowing regime in accordance with their global policies. And as we have already referred, some firms are required to have appropriate procedures in place to report whistleblowing in relation to MIFID, MIFIR and other legislation. 
The regulators, through their rules, suggest that a firm who is subject to the requirement regarding MIFID, for example, consider the wider whistleblowing requirements, which although may not be required by any standard, is good practice and provides a way for senior managers to know what is going on. Some firms may also have speak-up policies, although not technically a legal or regulatory requirement. However, if such policies are to have any credibility, those who do speak up need to be protected. Charles, you just mentioned anonymous whistleblowers. Do requests for anonymity cause problems during an investigation? Yes, anonymous whistleblowing can throw up a number of challenges, and there is no perfect way of dealing with such complaints. The firm should seek to investigate complaints as far as they can, but there will obviously be constraints if issues can't be followed up on or certain details can't be checked. There may also be circumstances where it is impossible to do a proper investigation without inadvertently identifying who the complainant is. Firms should consider whether there are tools that can be used to ensure a fair investigation at the same time as maintaining the anonymity of the whistleblower. For example, through the use of untraceable email address through which follow-up questions could be made to progress the investigation, or through a split investigation slash advisory team where the advisory team is unaware of the identity of the whistleblower. However, throughout any investigation, firms should be careful to ensure that attempts are not made to unmask an anonymous whistleblower where they are not prepared to identify themselves. Such behaviour could lead to regulatory complaints and potential sanctions for both the firm and individuals involved. Thanks. That's really interesting and it's clear that these issues are complex and can be tricky to navigate. Thank you to Jenny and Charles for joining me today and for the very interesting insights. We'd encourage you to get in touch with Jenny or Charles or any of our financial services regulatory or employment experts to discuss any of these matters further. If you're interested in learning more about recent whistleblowing developments, please have a look at our European employment team's review of the new whistleblowing directive across the EU, which may be of interest. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation in Focus soon. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.